If, uh, if you will, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We're reading the entire chapter. Uh, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 9, starting on verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult <laughs> and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it. With justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know. Ephraim and inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord rises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. With our baptism today, we do have a slightly different order of service. 
So do bear with us. We're going to begin with the sermon this morning. Um, we've been reading through the book of Isaiah, and it's been, it's been really fun. It's been really encouraging to read through that book um, and to see how God is, is, uh, is bringing ultimate justice through the cross. Uh, even though uh, God is bringing judgment on sin on the people of Israel, he still promises that there is salvation through Christ. That's, it's, it's fascinating to see that throughout the book of Isaiah. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Let's open in a word of prayer. Holy Father, as we come before you once again, we understand that we are but men, we are but humans. Lord, we need your word. We need the salvation that you offer to us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see clearly the message of this passage, of this narrative, and Lord, we can learn from it. In your name, amen. Many people come to the Old Testament and think that the God of the Old Testament is kind of like an abusive father. Uh, you better obey me or the hammer's coming down. Uh, right? Atheists, atheists love to talk about how mean God is in the Old Testament. On the other hand, God seems to be much nicer in the New Testament. Is God somehow different between one and the other? Uh, or are these two different gods we're talking about? Well, Scripture is clear that, there is, uh, that, uh, that God is the same God in the Old and New Testaments. In fact, Scripture is super clear that there is only one God. So, does God have a change of heart or a change of mind between the Testaments? Well, Scripture is also clear that God does not change. Um, so let me, let me give my suggestion here. I would suggest that any idea which claims that God is mean in the Old Testament and nice in the New Testament is missing major themes in the Old Testament. For example, today as we look at the flood, we tend to focus on this massive eradication of human and animal life. Uh, in punishment for sin. But if you look at the text and pay attention to how much space is given uh, to different topics in the text, the text actually focuses on, rather, God saving animals and humans through Noah. God then is not a temperamental deity leveling blows on sinners, but rather the text depicts God as a God who saves. The text is clear. The punishment brought on humanity's sin is rightfully deserved. What is strange is not that God would bring judgment, but that God would bring salvation. So as we think about this, God bringing judgment, well, how, is there any way to escape that, right? We, we, we can see in the text, as we'll see, that, that this judgment is rightfully deserved. So is there any way to avoid that judgment? First point this morning is that only the righteous can escape God's judgment. Only the righteous can escape God's judgment. We'll see in the text here, as we look in, in, in Genesis chapter 6, if we go back a couple of verses um, to, uh, to some of what we looked at last week, we look at how, how this is all described. This is verse, beginning in chapter 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God's discipline in this particular passage is prompted by his holiness. So it's a major theme throughout, the, throughout Scripture. In fact, Isaiah chapter 6 emphasizes this. As we get a look into the throne room of God, the angels that stand around the throne say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy. That means he is separate from us. That means he is perfect. He is righteous. He is good. And he cannot tolerate sin. He cannot tolerate wickedness. It would be against his very holy nature to do so. To tolerate sin and wickedness would be the wrong thing to do. God is holy. That's why judgment comes. In fact, we get a look at this judgment in more detail in chapter 7, verses 11 through 24, this judgment that comes through the flood. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. That's water coming from above and from below. And rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. I know right now some of us would think that might sound pretty good. <laughs> Promise you this was not a good sign. And we do need to continue praying for rain. Verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed over the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And, all, and this is actually the only time where we see death take place. In this, in this judgment, it says, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. We see here the discipline of God, the wrath of God on human wickedness and human sin. And it's prompted by his holiness to suggest or, or ask whether or not God was right to do this is the wrong question. The right question is, did God really have to save Noah and the other animals? Was he under obligation to do that? 
The answer is most certainly no. He had no obligation to do that. There's actually an interesting contrast between the way that Genesis 6 and 7 describe the flood. And if you, if you may be familiar with some ancient literature, there's, there's several other flood narratives. In fact, most, most uh, uh, mythologies have some kind of idea or concept of flood that takes place and fl- flood in, in terms of judgment. However, Genesis kind of stands out. Um, throughout these other flood narratives, you get this idea where, where the gods... Uh, take this hero and say, okay, you're going to be saved from this flood and, you know, build something to stay away from the flood. But then what happens is that the gods bring on this wrath on humankind because of whatever reason, usually because there's like, ah, oh, they're too much for me. I couldn't handle them anymore or whatever. I'm done with it. The gods look a lot more human than they do godlike uh, in comparison. But then what happens is they bring the flood waters and they can't control it. It goes out of their control. And they, they're like, ah, it's too much. Right? The gods really don't have control. Wherever, however, in Genesis, God shows himself to be in complete sovereign control over this entire circumstance. He's completely in control of the flood. He says, I will blot them out. That was his intention. In chapter 7 and verse 16, when they go into the when they go enter into the ark, who closes the door? God does. In other flood narratives, the the hero closes the door to save the day. In Genesis, God is the hero who shuts the door and protects his people. And then 7 verse 23, it says, he blotted them out. The wrath of God poured out on humankind in this particular instance was under God's complete and sovereign control. So God's discipline is prompted by his holiness. And we see second in the text, along with this idea that only the righteous can escape God's judgment, we see that apart from being righteous, you cannot escape God's judgment. Apart from being righteous, you cannot escape God's judgment. Look at how Noah is described here, in, beginning in chapter 6, verse 8. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Then beginning in verse 9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah, throughout, in, in this beginning part, is emphasized almost redundantly that he walks with God, and he is a righteous person. He is a righteous man. Noah walked with God, as we looked at last week, to walk with God means to be in relationship with him. We learn in the New Testament that righteousness does not come from ourselves. This is not an idea that Noah was such a great guy that God was like, I can't kill you. No, God, the righteousness that Noah had was just like the righteousness we receive in Christ. It comes from outside of him. It was given to him by God. God chose to save Noah just as he chooses to save us. Then we get a little bit of a picture of what what it means for Noah to walk with God. What does that look like? What does his walk with God look like? What does it mean that he's righteous? How How do we see that live itself out? 
Throughout the rest of this passage, and I'm going to, for time's sake, we're not going to go into, we're not going to read every bit of this. But if you look through this, uh, verses 11 and following, God gives all this detail. Here's how you're going to build the ark. This is how big it's going to be. This is how wide it's going to be. This is what's going to happen here. This is where you're going to build this, and you want to build a window that's this big, a build a door that's this big. You're going to put these animals in here. You're going to do this thing. Lots and lots of detail, right? Now, why would he give him that detail? Is it so Ken Ham could build a copy of the ark in, in, in Kentucky? Right? It's pretty cool that he did that. But is that the reason to give all this detail? I would say no. That the reason for the detail is to show how complete Noah's obedience was. In fact, if you were to compare this detail that God gives in the building of the ark, it actually prefigures the same type of detail that God gives when he commands the building of the tabernacle. From Exodus chapter 25 to, verse, to, chapter 20, to chapter 39, it's a big chunk of Exodus, by the way, all this detail is given to how the tabernacle is going to be built, how the clothes are going to be made, how the tools for the tabernacle are going to be put together. Why give all that detail? Is it because we didn't have enough to read? No. Because God wants to show how completely Moses obeyed the Lord. And the reason he gives this detail to know about Noah's obedience is to show how completely Noah obeyed the Lord. Both Moses and Noah obeyed God with all their hearts. Chapter 7, verse 5, in fact, emphasizes this point, and it says that Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Everything the Lord had commanded him, he did it. Now, as we mentioned We're not righteous on our own terms. I am not good enough to stand before God and say, I am righteous, so God, you need to accept me. I need righteousness from outside of me, and that's what we call righteousness in Christ, or being clothed in Christ's righteousness. In salvation, when you you receive Christ as your Savior, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are no longer covered in your filthy rags but you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. So when God sees you, he sees Christ's righteousness. But even if we are covered in Christ's righteousness, just like Noah, we are called to obey God with all of our heart. Do you obey God with all of your heart? Do you take his commands seriously and obey them meticulously? Let me give a few examples. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, do you love your wife that way? Do you love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? What about when Jesus says, sell all that you have and follow me if you want me to be, want to be my disciple? Do you have an idolatry of stuff, an idolatry of financial security? Do you put that above the God of the Bible? Well, Jesus' command there is not necessarily that we must sell everything and live in, live in, uh, in poverty. It's not a poverty gospel, so to speak. Rather, what he's saying is, do you love me more than that? He tells this rich person, sell all that you have and follow me. Why? Because that rich young ruler could not part with his finances. He was tight-fisted. He said, I'm not giving that up. 
if God wants that, I'm out. Rather, as a Christian, we say, if God wants it, here it is. Or what about when Jesus says, take up your cross, or you cannot be my disciple? Take up your cross. Many times we try so hard to avoid suffering that we are unwilling to take up the cross and follow him. Would you obey God with all of your heart? Second primary point we see today, we ask the question then, we see that only the righteous can avoid judgment. So then we ask the question, we, 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 we'll see, we'll, what we'll continue to see is that, is that the way is to, be, to be righteous is to be righteous in Christ, is to have a relationship with God, it's to walk with Him. It's not by doing good works, it's by having Christ's righteousness that we can avoid judgment. But then we can ask the question, can we prevent further judgment? Is there any, do we have any tools in our tool chest to prevent further judgment? This actually is interesting. After the flood, um, after the flood, and what we see here in chapter 8, when Noah, uh, Noah comes out of the, if you remember the, the story, uh, or the, the narrative, Noah is waiting in the ark, and he sends out the dove, and things like that. And what happens when they, you know, the, the the ark ends up resting on Mount Ararat, and the floodwaters go down, and God saves them, and then they come out of the ark. And what's the first thing that Noah does? Look at chapter 8 and verse 20. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The first thing Noah does when he gets out of the ark is he worships the Lord and intercedes for creation. Right? And how does God respond? never do that again I'm not going to respond in judgment in that particular way ever again Noah intercedes for humanity he prays for them we can intercede for those who are lost you know the first step in leading someone to Christ is praying for that person if we want to see, if, if First Baptist Church of Gordon wants to see people in Gordon, Texas come to Christ, the first thing we must do is pray for them. Because judgment is coming. And if those people are found apart from Christ, there will be eternal consequences at stake. And eternity is separated from God. We can help prevent that further judgment. We have a responsibility to help prevent that further judgment by praying for lost people, by sharing the gospel with them so that they can come to Christ and they can be found in Christ and be one of the righteous that are saved. Is your heart aligned with God's heart to save those who are perishing? Another further thing we see here in chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, God gives another interesting uh, 
command to humanity, another responsibility to humanity. It says in verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Of you shall be upon, um, uh, or be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I give you green plant, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made him in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is, that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never be, again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember and the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So we see God's promise here. But we, then we see God, before that, God gives responsibility to humanity. Hearkening back to Cain and Abel and Cain's descendant Lamech, we see that there is a, a, uh, a responsibility God gives to mankind that is to curb sin through punishment for murder. Right? God, God brings punishment on mankind. God, God brings uh, salvation to Noah, but judgment to humanity through the flood. Then he says, all right, man, all right, all right, humanity, you've got a responsibility now. You have a responsibility to help curb sin, to help take care of sin. We have a judicial system for one of those reasons. Right, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. God says that people who murder should be taken, have their life be taken as well. Now again, I'm, that's not necessarily an argument for the death penalty or anything political like that. That's not my intention. What we do see here is that God gives mankind a responsibility to curb the effects of sin. To try to stop sin from spreading by taking care of, of, sin, of the sin of mankind when it takes place. If we were to look into the New Testament, we see a similar idea here in what's also often called church discipline. God also gives authority to the church to curb sin among those who are in Christ, those who are the righteous and in the local church. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20 God says, when someone sins against you, go to that person individually. If they still refuse to repent, bring two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to repent, bring it before the church. 
And if they still refuse to repent, essentially Jesus says, treat them like they're not a believer. In other words, share the gospel with them. They need the gospel. They're probably not a Christian if they're living in unrepentance. 1 Corinthians 5 has a similar idea here. A man who is a, a part of the church is living in, in deep, dark, grotesque sin. And, and, and Paul says, get the guy out of there. He needs to be removed from fellowship. He needs the gospel. Just as judges have responsibility to bring consequences for breaking the law, so also the church has a responsibility to call believers to repent and, if necessary, to no longer affirm their testimony of salvation. Not saying that the church has the authority to take away somebody's salvation, but the church can say, we, as far as we know, we can't tell that they're a Christian. A person who claims to be a believer and refuses to repent and walk in obedience is a liar. It's 1 John chapter 1. Now before I get attacked on this podium today, let me help you walk through this a little bit. It would be unloving of me to tell you that you are a Christian if you're not striving to walk with God. It would be unloving of me to tell you that you are a Christian if you will not repent of clear disobedience. If you are indeed not a believer, then eternity is at stake if I do not warn you. Eternal judgment is waiting if you will not turn from your sin and turn toward Christ. But God will also bring temporary discipline on those people who are his who stray. And if we as a church can help each other avoid that temporary discipline by lovingly calling each other to repentance, are we not then fulfilling what it means to truly love one another? <sighs> Moving forward in our text. Probably the hardest part of this entire narrative. God has brought judgment leaving only a righteous remnant. And even starting over with a righteous remnant, with righteous Noah who walked with God, sin still comes back. Even our efforts, even with human, humans, humanity's responsibility to curb sin, ultimately we cannot stop God's final judgment. God here gives a new beginning. If you look at this language, the language here in, 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 in these chapters at the end of the flood, it's very similar to the language in Genesis 1 and 2. God essentially gives a new beginning, a beginning that starts with righteous Noah and his family. And just as God planted a garden, we see here in verse, verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Just as God planted a garden, so Noah planted a vineyard. But just as Adam ate of the fruit of the garden, the fruit he was not supposed to eat of, Noah also ate the fruit. You see this language continue again. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. This comes to an interesting facet of this passage. And because there's children present, we won't get too graphic in the detail here. But it says that he is, lies uncovered in his tent. This is a phrase used 
uh, again, Adam and Eve, after they sin, they are shown to be naked. And that, un- and that, that idea of being naked and uncovered in the presence of God was unacceptable. We find the same idea in the Levitical law. The, Levitic, the, the Levites, the, the priests, are supposed to wear undergarments so that their nakedness is not exposed on the altar. Uh, for that would be shameful before the Lord. And here we see that Noah, or that Noah, yeah, Noah has drank, drunk the wine and become drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. He lay sin born wide open. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now again, if you grew up with this story, you might find this kind of odd. So he accidentally saw his dad without clothes on. Like, why, why, did that, why did that become such a harsh punishment, as we'll see later? What, what's going on here? Again, for sake of, uh, of, of, of the ears that are present, we'll be careful. Uh, this is not accidentally seeing his father without clothes on. In fact, um, because of uh, later on in the, in the Old Testament, we see uh, later on in the Pentateuch, in the law, um, uh, nakedness is often uh, associated with sexual activity of some kind. It's very likely that there are sexual overtones in what took, takes place this day. What the nature of that is, uh, conversation for another day. But either way, the righteous remnant falls right back into sin. It doesn't take long at all. Ham sees the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But then, like God did for Adam and Eve, Shem and Japheth covered their father's nakedness. Essentially, what we have is a contrast between Ham, who chose to not act like God and cover his father's nakedness, and Shem and Japheth, who, who decide to act like God and cover their father's nakedness. walking backward covered the nakedness of their father their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness when Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son what his youngest son had done to him he said curse be Canaan a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers he also said blessed be the Lord the God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant after the flood Noah lived 350 years all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died Canaan's descendants here, as we'll find out, Ham himself is not cursed. It ends up his son, Canaan, is cursed. What the nature of this curse is is not exactly clear, but what we do know is that the descendants of Canaan would be the people who live in the land that God will ultimately dispossess from the land, the Canaanites, right? This is where they get their name. The sons of Canaan, the descendants of Canaan would be the enemies of Israel, the Canaanites, by the time Israel is, is coming to retake the land, when God dispossesses them, the Canaanites have become worshipers of all kinds of false gods. What this passage, this ending passage shows us is that we are all too sinful to be able to save ourselves on our own. We all need a savior. But let's take a break here. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter makes an interesting claim that the flood is like baptism. 
Seems like an odd thing, given what we're seeing about the flood and being that we're about to go into a baptism. What in the world does the flood have to do with baptism? Well, real briefly, let me explain. There's a, there's a, 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 a pattern in Scripture that we'll see, especially in the Pentateuch, where God brings salvation and water is present through the use of means of water. Not that the water saves them, right? The water doesn't save Noah, right? It's the ark that God built, that, that God had Noah build, that God saved Noah, right? The water did not save Noah. Later on, the people of Israel will be, will be marched out of Egypt. And what happens to them? They come up to a sea. They come up to water that should have been their downfall, should have been their judgment, but God splits the water wide open. And they walk across on dry ground. God saves them, and water is present. The same thing when the people come in to the land of Canaan. They cross over the river Jordan. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus actually follows the same pattern. He shows himself to be a new and better Moses. After Jesus is born, his family escapes into Egypt. And when he comes out of Egypt, what's the next thing the text tells us about? He is baptized. He passes through the water in obedience to the Father. And then enters into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. What are the people of Israel? After they passed across the Red Sea, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he eventually dies and brings salvation. So water and salvation, this whole motif throughout Scripture, there's this connection that is drawn there. Peter pulls on this connection and says, just like the flood. Let's, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3 real quick. If I can find it. <laughs> I didn't mark this one. 1 Peter chapter 3. Beginning in verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed this to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. See that connection there. Salvation and water. And this is interesting. This is where some people get confused in their theology of baptism. It says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Remember what the flood is pointing to. The flood waters do not point to, it's not the water that saved Noah, but the flood waters point to the salvation that God brought to Noah. To Noah. The waters of the Red Sea did not save the people of Israel, but they did point to the salvation that God brought to the people of Israel. Just as the waters of baptism do not save you, but point to that salvation. Now, if you think that that might be confusing because of Peter's remarks here, where he says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, don't forget to read the rest of the verse. He says, not as a removing of filth from the body. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's not the waters that save you. It's not that what this, the water that is in this tank is Gordon water, right? If you remember a few months ago when we had problems with the water, we know this water is not going to save you, right? In fact, it could drink death to you. Just kidding. No, we're very thankful for our city officials and the work they've done to get our water cleaned back up. 
But the water does not save you. There's nothing special about this water. There's not any magic pastor powder that can put in there that makes a person all of a sudden never sin again. There's nothing special about this water. It's just water. What's special about it is what it points to. It points to the death and resurrection of Christ that a person has believed in and trusted in for their salvation. It's not the washing of filth, but it's the good conscience before God. It's what it points to. It points to the God who saves. It points to what God has done in salvation. Just as the flood points to the salvation of Noah and salvation from Egypt and ultimately salvation in Christ, so baptism points to the salvation in Christ. So coming back to where we started, we see God brings judgment in this particular instance. What is strange is not that God brings judgment. What is strange is that sinners like us are not snuffed out in an instant. That's what we deserve. What is strange is that God is patient with sinners. That you can live a certain amount of time in your life without having received Christ. And when you come to that moment of salvation, that God has been, been patient with you up to that moment and continues to be patient with you. What's strange is that God is patient with sinners and draws them to repentance and salvation. That's strange. What's strange is that God the Son offers himself as a sacrifice for our sin and raises from the dead so that we can be saved. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to show in the baptism this morning. Let's close this particular time with a word of prayer, and Braley's going to come up and share her testimony with us. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who saves, that you love us enough to draw us to repentance, that, Lord, we deserve eternity separated from you because of your great care for us, your mercy and your grace. You make salvation possible for us. Lord, we thank you for that. I pray if there is someone here who does not know you as Savior, that they would be drawn to repentance. Lord, as I pray if there is someone here who is a believer and is not walking in obedience to you, that they would repent of that, turn, turn from their sin, and return back to you. I pray this in your name. Amen.